Rogue's Gallery Uncovered Bad Behaviour in Period Costume A non-judgmental insertion into the scandalous private lives of history's greatest libertines, lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes and a touch of colourful language. So grown-ups only. Wicked Jimmy What a cunt! Celebrating the long-overdue demise of one of the 18th century's most disliked millionaires with Sir James Lowther, first Earl of Lonsdale. The following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I'm not a long-suffering Regency landowner outraged by my neighbour's psychotic behaviour, those views and opinions are obviously not mine. What would later become Cumbria, 1802. Excellent news, Sir James Lowther, first Earl of Lonsdale, has fallen off his horse while out riding. Well, of course he was drunk, when isn't he? It gets better though, he broke his stupid neck when he hit the ground. No, 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 hang on, stop laughing, you haven't heard the best bit. The miserable bastard's dead. I know, isn't it wonderful? No one ever had a good word to say about wicked Jimmy, the bad Earl. Jimmy Graspall, Earl of Toadstool. He was mean, spiteful, vicious, perverted, and only ever loved the acquisition of power. It's little wonder that he made such a good politician. They also called him the Gloomy Earl, although I'd have been dancing a hornpipe with a milkmaid's bonnet on my head if I'd inherited three separate fortunes on my father's death at the age of only nine. Apparently, he was bullied at boarding school, but who isn't? Being roasted over an open fire by a gang of laughing boys builds character. Within a few years though, he was the one doing the bullying, and by the time he left to go to Cambridge University, he was the most evil first-year broiling swine of the lot. He departed Cambridge without a degree, but as one of the richest men in England, who needs to be a Bachelor of Latin? What Jimmy wanted was influence. His mother had long drummed into him the importance of power and control over such petty considerations as kindness and humanity. She was a cold woman, you know, never remarried. James took this to heart and asked for the hand of the Prime Minister's daughter, Lady Mary Stuart, a girl for whom he felt little affection, but whose father could be of invaluable help in his political ambitions. Of course, this marriage of convenience didn't stop him from strapping any other woman who took his fancy. He said that he had seven mistresses on the go at any one time, a wench for every day of the week. His prowess with the ladies, though, had nothing to do with his appearance. He was forever dressed in black silk, fussing around with a nosegay in his hand as if the stench of the rest of the world gave him great offence. And he was strange. Very, very strange. They say that he took both male and female servants to his bed, whether they wanted to go or not, and that he greatly enjoyed ritualistically beating them. Apparently, Lowther once persuaded a tenant farmer of his into allowing his young and beautiful daughter to come and stay with him, for her benefit and advancement, obviously. As planned, 
she quickly became one of the Earl's mistresses, but sadly died of fever not long after. Irritated that he hadn't had his money's worth, Lowther is said to have had her head embalmed and placed in a glass case, which he kept in a cupboard, so he could still visit her whenever he chose. When not romantically distracted by severed heads, though, Lowther was a skilful political schemer. In 1781, he became the patron of a young barrister by the name of William Pitt, who was campaigning to win a parliamentary seat in the town of Appleby. Now, Appleby was a pocket borough, made up primarily of tenants who owed their voting allegiance to one man. That man was James Lowther. So unsurprisingly, Pitt won his seat, although he'd never actually visited Appleby in his entire life. As William Pitt the Younger, that young fellow was Chancellor of the Exchequer the following year and then Prime Minister the next. Lowther was an expert at manipulating votes and using his wealth to get the results that he wanted. In the general elections between 1780 and 1784, no less than nine of the winning candidates, Lowther's nine pins they were called, were directly controlled or heavily influenced by him. Prime Minister Pitt showered him with titles. He became Baron this and Viscount that and was even elevated to the peerage. But he still wasn't entirely happy because in the list of peerages that particular year, two other gentlemen of quality had been awarded their honours ahead of him. He complained loudly about this outrage in the House of Commons and made such a fuss that he had to be led out of the building in a headlock. His irritation, however, was soon replaced by arrogance. In 1792, Lowther challenged an army captain, Captain Cuthbert of the Guards, to a duel because he had the temerity to stop his coach on a busy street. The street, Mount Street in London, had recently been the scene of some rioting, so the captain was merely performing his duty in trying to keep the public safe. You rascal! Do you not know I'm a peer of the realm? Lowther spat at him from the window. The captain was quick to reply. I don't know that you're a peer, but I know that you are a scoundrel for applying such a term to an officer on duty, and I will make you answer for it. Following an exchange of some more equally passionate language, the captain felt obliged to accept the potentially fatal meeting. When they did face each other on the laughably described field of honour, Lowther's bullet passed right through the folds of Cuthbert's coat. And if it hadn't, I'm told, struck one of his brass buttons and bounced off, the blameless officer would have been instantly killed. Not that Lowther would have swung for it. Someone described him as a madman too influential to be confined which was about right. And he was a miser. Unless it was to further his own ends, Lowther had an almost unnatural aversion to spending any of his great wealth. Lowther Hall was a burnt-out ruin following a fire in 1720, but he continued to live in its crumbling shell simply because he refused to pay for any repairs. His coach was a rusting wreck pulled by ungroomed horses. The coal mines, which were the mainstay of one of his fortunes, were in such a poor state of repair that miners, who worked in appalling conditions, regularly perished in accidents. When one of them threatened to sue, he promptly closed them all down, making every single miner immediately unemployed. He said that he'd only reopen them when he received a petition of at least 2,500 signatures begging him to do so and stating in writing that he was no longer legally accountable for any further deaths. 
the miners were desperate and soon he got his petition. Do you know, he once employed the father of the poet William Wordsworth, who was a solicitor, but refused to pay him for years. He ended up owing the Wordsworths £5,000, a huge sum which he could easily have paid, but he simply refused. Lowther left the Wordsworth family horribly in debt and young William grew up in abject poverty. It's no surprise, therefore, that he was passionately in favour of the French Revolution, where the idle rich got their comeuppance. And then there was Daniel Bloom. He was the manager of one of Lowther's factories, where they made carpets. The workforce was made up of children who were recruited from foundling hospitals on Lowther's Yorkshire estates. Their wages were supposed to be a pittance, but Jimmy wouldn't even pay that. So Bloom supported the factory workers out of his own pocket, until he too was desperately in debt. He wrote a heartbreaking letter to the Earl, asking for financial support for his wife and family. Do you think he got a reply? I heard that Lowther justified his meanness by saying, if he owed money to friends, then he already knew them to be knaves. But if he owed money to people he wasn't on friendly terms with, then how could he know what they were? He basically thought that everyone was as vile as he was, and therefore didn't deserve to be treated fairly. The only evidence that this mean-spirited bastard had any heart at all was his devotion to his favourite mistress. And even that was perverse. Betsy Lewis had shared his bed for 25 years when she died in 1797. Not used to having his possessions taken from him before he could discard them, Lowther simply refused to accept that she'd croaked. He slept with the corpse next to him in bed for seven weeks and propped it up at the dining table dressed in its finest clothes. When, weeks later, the smell of his decomposing dining companion became too much even for him to bear, he then had her embalmed and sealed in a glass-topped coffin. They say he then used the coffin as a sideboard. And now he's gone to join her. I wonder if she's pleased. Lowther was forever riding his horse at breakneck speed with absolutely no consideration for anyone who might get in his way. Do you know, he used to cover the 300 miles to London in only 36 hours. So it came as no surprise that he finally met his end falling from the saddle. Not one person shed a tear. There was a rumour that he had been poisoned with a draught that mimicked death and that faint knocking from his coffin at the funeral meant that he'd actually been buried alive. But I strongly suspect that that was just a bit of wishful thinking. Rest in peace, Jimmy. Following James Lowther's death, tributes poured in from his devastated peers. Tyrannical, overbearing, violent and frequently under no restraint of temper or of reason. Equally unamiable in public and private. Lonsdale has a most tyrannical temper and not a spark of gratitude. Shocking ferocity and undignified manner of living. One of the most worthless men in His Majesty's dominions. You never hear him spoken of but with the greatest abhorrence. He really was a total cunt. 
When they rifled through Lowther's house, they found 500 bags hidden throughout the building containing £60,000 worth of coins. Each one of the bags was labelled according to the quality of the coins that it contained. So some were labelled indifferent, others perfect, and a few super excellent. These were probably the only things about James Lowther that could possibly have been described as super excellent. I was though intrigued as to why he was referred to as the Earl of Toadstool and I think that it's got something to do with his political chicanery. In 1786 there was an election in Carlisle that Lowther was intent upon winning for one of his relatives. To achieve this he brought in 1,400 additional voters from out of the area whom he paid to vote the way he wanted. These mushroom voters, so called because the number of people voting in the election suddenly mushroomed, were actually miners, militiamen and servants who had nothing to do with Carlisle whatsoever and who disappeared back to their own parts of the country once the election was over. It turns out that the recorder of Carlisle, who wrote down all the voters and fake voters' details, was James Boswell, the famous biographer of Dr Johnson. A well-known rake himself, it's not surprising that he wanted to stay on Lowther's good side by turning a blind eye to his scheming. Although, again, not surprisingly, their relationship soured. I wonder whose fault that was. And Lowther was heard to threaten to put a bullet in Boswell's belly. It's said that if the moon is full on the night of the 24th of May, the date that Lowther died, then his ghost can still be seen driving pell-mell through the grounds of Lowther Castle. While this is probably bollocks, and if you're a ghost enthusiast, let me know about any sightings or anything. It would be just like Wicked Jimmy to want to spend eternity doing exactly as he pleased while pissing everybody off. Next time on Rogue's Gallery Uncovered. Death by fellatio. Sucking the life out of the Belle Epoque with Marguerite Steinheil. I'm really enjoying writing and hosting this podcast and I hope you're enjoying listening to it. The download numbers seem to indicate to my Luddite brain that more and more of you are discovering Rogue's Gallery Uncovered, which is brilliant. If you have any disreputable friends or acquaintances that you think would enjoy a drop of roguery, then feel free to spread the love and let them know about the podcast on social media, by carrier pigeon, or just by standing at the top of the road and shouting. There'll be some news coming up next week about naughty little extras for those of you who wish to support me on Patreon. And a few weeks later, I should be making an announcement of some cheeky merchandise. So it's all go. Keep up to speed by visiting roguesgalleryuncovered.com and signing up to the newsletter to become a lovable rogue. Have a great week, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>